Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. I'm Aaron Schweitzer, publisher of The Source. Today we have a special treat. My co-host is not our editor, Nicole Vulcan, but reporter Jack Harville. Thank you, Jack. We are powered by The Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. We are glad that you're taking some of your time to listen to us chat with the people who shape our local community. This is our calm in the eye of the hurricane of publishing, so thanks for sharing this moment with us. Today we are talking to Dave Naftalin. Did I say that correctly? Absolutely. And Jeanette Small. Uh, Dave is started his career in commercial real estate in the Washington, D.C. area before moving to Bend in 2012 to work for Hum Kombucha, first as the director of operations and then as the director of global logistics. In 2018, he started farming hemp and raising alpacas on his farm in Tumalo. Now he's one of just a few people licensed by the state to facilitate a psilocybin experience with his company, Drop Thesis. Jeanette Small is an artist who has lived and worked in Central Oregon since 2013. She taught weekly figure drawing labs and classes at Central Oregon Community College for almost eight years. She has a BA in psychology and a PhD in clinical psychology with an emphasis in somatic psychology. Her newly formed company, Lucid Cradle, seeks to improve the quality of life for, quote, those who suffer symptoms of mental distress and those who see greater life satisfaction and connection with their embodied human condition. Thank you both for being with us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Uh, so, Dave, why don't we just start with you? What, what got you interested in becoming a psilocybin facilitator? Yeah, it's a great question. I, um, I mean, it's a new pioneering industry, and it's something while it's been here for thousands of years, um, knew not only the state of Oregon, but the country. So being on the forefront of that and having the ability to be a part of this this plant medicine and being able to make it accessible to millions um, was just something that's always drawn me and something that I just couldn't pass up. That's great. What about you, Jeanette? So for me, uh, working with psilocybin is an aspiration that I've held for many, many years. Um, it's an opportunity that's... Um... No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. We have a creaky mic. All right. <laughs> Working with psilocybin is an opportunity that is truly very unique and very special to me. Um, I personally have a rich trauma background myself, and I've studied psychology, and so I'm familiar with what is out there to help people find happiness in life, find kind of a reconnection with their true self and with a greater unity with the universe. So psilocybin really gives this opportunity unlike anything else, and I'm so happy to be able to participate in this. Yeah, and I think we want to get a sense of how different these uh, experiences can be for people. So I, I guess I'd ask uh, how each of you are planning on approaching uh, sessions with your clients. Yeah, so you know that's a it's it's really interesting because there's a lot of uh, different approaches to this, and it's client focused, right? So, um, like at the service centers that that we're opening here with Drop Thesis, um, we're doing it. We're setting them up so they're not a very medical feel. Um, it's more of a, a recreational feel. It has um, lots of different themed rooms. Um, and it's going to try to cater to anyone and everyone. So even if people are going in there um, and they they want to go in for more of a an experience that is going to allow them to feel connected more to themselves or, or have self-love, or maybe they have a trauma that they want to work through, um, 
you know, the end result of these sessions can be a lot different than, than what you think going in. So we're just trying to create a really safe environment, um, a tru- an environment with, built on love and trust um, between the facilitator and the clients um, to just help everyone with, with self-growth and uh, be able to get this medicine to all in need and all who want. Thanks, Dave. That was a really wonderful (laughs) way to sum that up. Um, So what can I add to that? I would like to work with people uh, more one-on-one. I am looking to open my own center so that I can be the facilitator. I would like to have facilitators helping me out on occasion, but I would myself like to see every client that I'm, you know, bringing into the center. For me, this is an opportunity to work on transpersonal issues. And um, again, it's it's access to the sacred. It's access to the divine. So for me, it is really about creating the space where the, where the person can access those parts of themselves, where they can remember the wisdom that they hold beneath the conscious minds, beneath that verbal engagement with others, find themselves underneath the roles and the masks that we're carrying every day. You both did over... 300 hours of training to become a facilitator, which is quite a bit. What is that training composed of? How do you, uh, yeah, how do you get started? Why don't we start with Jeanette this time? Well, our training was really quite rigorous. Um, We did quite a bit of reading. We, I think, completed about an average of six books with additional reading that was recommended but not required. Uh, We reviewed a ton of peer-reviewed journals and articles. We met uh, over Zoom um, four days a week on average. So we met on Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and then every other weekend on Saturday and Sunday for two hours. We discussed everything that we read. We wrote assignments um, every day before our classes. Um, So we really did quite a lot of work and review, and we discussed just about everything that we could that is available in at least uh, the Western wisdom. Um, We have also learned a little bit about indigenous cultures and how they're utilizing ethnogens. So I feel like our preparation was quite substantial, and we concluded all of that with a one-week course together uh, where we practiced breath work because we're the first ones, so we didn't have psilocybin centers available to go and do the practicum there. Um, So we approximated the experience through breath work, which was really quite intense and really transformational for quite a few of us in the group. We got to process a lot of it and to do some of the integration work as well. Um, Dave, sorry. (laughs) No, I mean, listen, I I was really honored to be able to go to school with Jeanette here. And uh, there were 10 others besides the two of us in our program with Changa Institute. And and there's there's many schools now, and I I can't speak to all of them because I've only gone to the one. But, um, you know, what really brought Changa to the forefront for me um, was the quality of their professors and their curriculum. And, you know, that like, like Jeanette was saying, they, they focused not only on the pharmacology and everything like that, but also on the sh- social equity, which was really important. And, um, you know, there were a lot of studies uh, that we had to read that were published, you know, by Johns Hopkins University, um, NYU and the Harvard School of Divinity. And so when you're reading these three massive institutions and standing in integrity with them, um, it feels really, really good. I mean, they've been doing decades of research and um, they're hitting all points of it from the Western medical side to the mysticism part with divinity. And it's just an amazing coursework. 
Yeah. When when did you um, when did you complete the coursework, or when did that schooling take place? Yeah. So we f- we graduated um, in the end of March. Okay. And uh, so it was the twelve of us that graduated. I know that Intertrack also had a class that graduated right around the same time. Okay. And since then, there's now four of us that are licensed in the state or the country, however you want to look at it. And um, there's one lab now certified, a couple manufacturers, and now we're just waiting um, for the service centers to open. And we'll so be- when you finish the classwork, does it roll right into certification, or do you go from taking the class, and what's the next step by which you get, appro- quote, approved? Yeah, so basically, you know, you do your classwork, you have to take, take a state exam, you have to complete your coursework, you have to write a social equity plan as a facilitator, and then you have to submit basically everything to the Oregon Health Authority. Uh, I guess the subcategory of that would be the Oregon Psilocybin Service, um, and you just have to make sure to get all that in. They review it all, and then they issue licenses as they deem appropriate. So how long has it been since you've been, you've been licensed? We got licensed in mid-April, so it's only been a couple weeks here, um, and it's been an honor and a pleasure to be the first. Yeah, congratulations. Is there a, a vetting process, maybe not a strict one, for clients about maybe things like dosage or even if psilocybin therapy may not be right for them? Um, and is there a protocol for a quote-unquote bad trip? Yes, absolutely. So we do have to vet the clients before they're able to receive any services. And in within the measure 109, a lot of those things are already predetermined. So we're supposed to be screening out um, certain conditions. If a person, for example, has been taking lithium within the last three months, they would not be suited to take this medication um, because of the concerns of physiological um, harm. So there are some things that we do screen out by default. A lot of things are going to be up to the facilitator to determine whether or not they feel like there's an affinity, if they're going to be able to support the client adequately, and um, also preparing for the possibly negative adverse adverse effects uh, within a trip. This is going to be really reliant on the relationship between the facilitator and the client. Um, a lot of it is going to be between kind of the preparation sessions and the intentions and the set and setting that we're able to create. But some of it is going to be just a surprise because we're going on a journey. We're going on an adventure. There is no guarantee of a particular type of trip. Sometimes the experience might turn a bit unpleasant. Hopefully the facilitator is able to support the client so as to be regulating themselves and finding value and virtue within their experience anyways. Yeah, the only thing that I would add to that, too, is that, um, you know, integration is a huge piece of this. So and it, it, it and it's a part of the process. You have your intake, you have the medicine session itself, and then you have integration. Um, in my opinion, integration is the most important part. And, you know, facilitators will be doing this. A lot of facilitators are actually getting tr- getting their facilitator's license and just doing the integration piece. I mean, you, anyone can go through their session, and then it's how do I put these pieces together? How do I how do I implement any changes? So it's really important, I think, that you know people know that that's a part of it, and that there are people there to help through it. Researchers have found psilocybin may be helpful to get people to stop abusing alcohol and tobacco, and that may be helpful in treating anxiety, depression, and PTSD. However, sample sizes are somewhat small. You guys are are kind of pioneers in this effort as 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 Oregon is in and of itself. So um 
more research is certainly needed. What do you what do you both see um, that you'd like explored more by uh, medical literature or in the profession? Let, let's just start with you, Dave. Sure. Yeah, so I think that really education about this whole process is key right now. Like you said, there are small groups, um, but there are, I think I mentioned it earlier, there's there's some pretty big institutions that have been doing this for a long time. Sure. Um, and, and that has been in clinical studies, in clinical settings as well with, with Hopkins and NYU. And um, I think that and that, that research is out there for people to see. So, so I, I really recommend people people doing that, you know, from a, from a personal level, um, it, it has helped me a lot. Um, it, it, I was on antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications. Um, it helped me get off of them completely. And this is just my personal experience. And, uh, it's also helped me through, through big, um, traumas in my life as well. Um, I also want to make it really clear that, you know, there is not, there is not a, a cure all, right? This is a, it's another tool in the toolbox. It's a piece of the mosaic. Um, but it's, it seems to be very effective, um, in, in people's, um, reviews and in the, in, in the, the studies that have been going on thus far. Oh my, would I? <laughs> My heart is pounding so hard because this is really exciting to me. I would really like to participate in the uh, fact-finding and the gathering and the clinical studies myself. <coughs> so I do understand the limitations of clinical research in a university setting. We want to make sure to keep the participants exceptionally safe, which is really good, and this is really wonderful and vital, and we want to explore everything in the safest way possible. At the same time, this is not what reality looks like. If we have um, a preparation session with two therapists for, let's say, six or eight hours, and then we have four medication sessions, and then we have an additional three to four meetings after that, all with two therapists who are perfectly trained for that and are just paying attention to you, I'm going to say that's perhaps... Some of the effects have to do with the format of just being held and tended to and witnessed by so many professionals so acutely with so much care and for everyone to desire your well-being in such a wonderful way. That's great. That is absolutely wonderful, and it is promising. At the same time, that does not mean that that medication can be given um, by prescription with the expectation of the same return on your investment. I perfectly doubt that um, taking psilocybin at home to yourself will yield kind of the miracle changes that we're seeing in those dyads in the therapeutic relationship. So I would really like to participate in the exploration where this medication is of use and where it finds its limits. Um, I would like to assist pharmacological development in finding, you know, what is and what is not possible because we don't want to promise things that are not going to manifest. That is going to be harmful to, um, you know, to the things that this medication can actually help with. So we don't want to throw out the the baby with the bathwater, but at the same time want to explore everything. Yeah. Um, and marijuana, it started out as a medical market and eventually uh, found its way into the retail market. Do you foresee something similar with psilocybin? It's not without uh, precedent. We see it in uh, the Netherlands. Um, wh what do you see uh, a potential future of retail in this space? 
I'm actually really glad you brought this up because, you know, right now there's a huge misconception uh, and there's a lot of uh, lumping together of psilocybin and cannabis. And right now it's kind of like apples to oranges. So um, the way that the psilocybin laws and regulations are set up right now is that it is not it is not a dispensary system set up in place. No one can go and buy a psilocybin product and leave, right? So so right now, uh, you know, you, you, you can... You meet with your facilitator, you go over your intake process, you go over all the things that are required by the state, um, and then you can have a recommended dose in the service center from a manufacturer. They can buy it, you know, in the, the client will buy it in the service center, and then the client will bring it to the session that day. So it never leaves the service center at all. I think it's really important to know this. There's also a lot of people that think you need a doctor's prescription to go to these service centers, and it's just not the case. Anyone... Anyone can can do this if they're willing and able, if they feel called or anything like that. So um, it could that change in the future? I, I guess you know I I'm not writing, we're not writing the laws on that, but as of now, it's a it's a really great system that's in place, um, and it's a lot different than the Oregon Medical Marijuana Program and everything like that. Regarding gov- government growth in this area, legislators, are, um, we understand, are considering a bill, Senate Bill 303, that would track the number of people getting these services, their race, their gender, if they're Oregon residents, the reason they're seeking psilocybin services, and if there's an adverse outcome. How do you feel about about the development of a bill like this? Jeanette, why don't you start this one? So I've been following this debate, and I've listened carefully to the concerns uh, that have been brought forth. Um, And I have to say, I understand. So first and foremost, as a person who does want to do studies and would like to explore all of the questions that are being raised and uh, we seek to address through this reporting mandate, I understand, and I definitely, uh, I'm with it. I also think that it should not be a mandate per se. I think it would be better to give people options to report because um, just from experience, I think you might get better results and better compliance. I think that a lot of clients, especially people who are early adopters, are going to want to contribute to other, um, you know, to people's understanding of what this is all about, what works and what doesn't work. And I anticipate that a lot of clients would actually be quite comfortable with depersonalized data about themselves being put forth. And for those persons for whom this is really a deal breaker, who fear, um, you know, negative consequences from even depersonalized data about them going out there, it would cause harm to force those folks to share information they do not feel comfortable doing. So while I understand uh, the reasoning, and I personally would like to collaborate and provide that data, I don't think it should be a mandate. I mean, I th- it's it's clearly showing that they're not viewing it. Um, if they're pushing forward this kind of legislature as uh, the same as a medical condition, because you're certainly not covered under HEPA in this case, where you can't can't even get someone's last name, um, is that trend concerning to you? That divide between what's considered medical and what's considered drug use. I think, quite honestly, the lines are always drawn a little bit arbitrarily. I think that, um, you know, (laughs) 
whether a substance is considered therapeutic or whether it is considered to be, you know, a harmful substance really depends on the intent of the user more than anything else. Um, I'd like to point to, for example, opioids. You know, if you are going through surgery without opioids, life is quite miserable. And I personally have had to use opioids when going through surgery, and I've been very grateful to have that substance available to me. At the same time, I do not think that it is a harmful substance and completely without any kind of, um, you know, ill effects out in the public in the general, you know, just in the misuse of that substance. So the substances are always, you know, living in that gray area. And it's up to us to to help people understand how to use it responsibly and how to make sure that everything is unfolding with the least amount of harm in every way possible. I mean, I couldn't I couldn't agree more with, with both of these questions. You know, I think um, I, I mean, I agree with everything Jeanette said. <laughs> Data is needed to further this industry, to be able to make this more accessible to if we're ever talking about getting descheduled and having healthcare come into this, you know, data is going to be required. And at the same time, I don't ever think things should be mandated, right? I think it, it should be depersonalized, like she was saying. And it's just a, it's a really slippery slope at the moment. Um, I think that uh, this industry can be so promising and it has a lot of um, really amazing potential. And I think we just need to keep going the course at this point. I think the thing that I found, I'll just say curious, was in reading the language of the bill where they want to track whether an individual has had an adverse outcome. I I can certainly say if I was an individual coming in for this type of therapy, I would not want it publicly available what kind of experience I had while I was, you know, using psilocybin. Um, and it, it's certainly nobody's business if it, in, in my personal opinion. And, uh, I just want wonder if you could respond to that. Jenna, why don't you? Absolutely. And, um, so I'm going to speak to it as if I were a, a proper researcher at a university answering that question. <laughs> the importance of reporting adverse effects is not to put the experience uh, you know, under a light and to uh, give away that somebody had a negative experience as much as it is a warning to others and also an understanding because oftentimes in self-reports, you know, in the underground, we tend to report the positive experiences and not report the negative experiences for exactly the reasons that you've just spoken to. Nobody wants to be that person who, oh my goodness, this is an amazing substance. It helps everybody. Everyone feels one with the world and I felt awful. That must have been my fault. And so because of those motivations, oftentimes the negative effects are not reported, and that skews the picture. So if we do have negative effects that we observe, I think it is vital that we share that with the world, but again, not attached to the person, not saying, hey, this person, you know, Bob over there, he had a really bad experience. He didn't do it right. (laughs) But rather say, you know, maybe out of this many clients, so, um, so many had not a desirable outcome, and that will help inform us all. And just also, too, I, you know, what is a negative experience, right? Does that mean that the, the session was hard and things were coming up that um, maybe people weren't expecting to face? And, and if that was the case, uh, potentially, if you talk to that person days or weeks later, after integration, after time to process, 
what was hard or negative during the session potentially could have been something that was um, very freeing um, after that. Yeah. Um, and what seems to, uh, despite what seems to be um, a lot of demand for this, um, I checked the what's available, and there's only about three manufacturers, one testing lab, uh, four facilitators, and no service centers up as of yet. What are the next steps uh, you two would have to take to actually start seeing clients? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, uh, service centers need to open, um, and there that is happening soon. Um, I know we're about 60 days out from a couple opening in the state, and uh, there are 18 uh, applications in at this point. Um, I think uh, so. They need to open the rest of the the rest of the uh, project is in place. Um, so that's the last piece of it. Um, I think uh, the what they're saying is by the end of the year there should be about 800 facilitators licensed in the state and um, around 20 service centers. But those service centers range from one-room treatment facilities to up to four or five is the largest that I've heard thus far. It's also reported that sessions can cost quite a bit, 3500 by some estimates, which can make sense after, you know, the amount of training that providers go through, insurance, space to work. How would you change the legal model so that this can become more approachable for folks? I mean, the short answer would be to make it legal. <laughs> um, because the substance remains a Schedule One substance, that makes it an illegal drug trafficking business. And because of that, we're not able to write any of our uh, expenses off on federal taxes so whatever n normally um, a business has to spend to make the business work, you know, paying rent and all of that, we're not able to write it off. Additionally, we have to secure ourselves. You know, we might um, have negative consequences with creditors. We might have negative consequences with other institutions that have moral um, judgments about what it is that we do. So it is prudent for us to provide for ourselves financially such that the business doesn't go bankrupt before it has a chance to even, you know, really open doors. So once we're able to demonstrate to the public uh, that this is, in fact, a safe business, that this is a safe industry, that we're able to provide services in a way that benefit our society, hopefully that will change the legislative intent of our, uh, well, lawmakers who will reconsider and make it legal, and that will make it much more affordable for everyone. Could that be done by rescheduling rather than uh, legalizing as well? Or Yes, okay. absolutely. Well, we are at the conclusion of our time for this podcast. Um, I'd like to uh, just open it up for anything that you guys would like to say in closing. Dave, maybe, maybe you say something and Jeanette will follow. Yeah, it's just uh, thank you for having us here today. It's just it's an honor and a pleasure to be able to to have a voice in this in this pioneering industry. Um, I think it is it's really exciting. I think that you know from from what I've seen thus far, this is a topic that is not politically polarizing. People from all walks are are, are interested in this, um, and you know I, I credit I credit Michael Pollan and his book um, a lot of for for a lot of that. It, it brought um, a lot of people that may have thought of psilocybin as counterculture to at least curiosity. Um, and he's he's brought this whole generation of baby boomers to the table for it, which is really cool. 
And so I'm, I'm super grateful for that. And um, it, this is going to be something that we, we could talk about a lot over the next couple of years. And we're going to see a lot of changes and a lot of um, success stories and definitely some, uh, some of the opposite as well. And um, it's just like kind of buckle up and here we go. <laughs> Well, I do want to thank you so much for inviting me. This is not an easy format for me. I am definitely a person who spends much more time in a more intimate environment with a client, either drawing them or sitting with them, being in a space that's very confidential. So speaking uh, with a voice out to the world is a bit of a challenge. And thank you so much for making me feel so welcome and comfortable. This has been a really wonderful, warm experience for me. I do hope, as uh, Dave has also mentioned, that we will come back to discuss this industry as it does progress and as it develops, because there will be new discoveries, things that we have not yet anticipated, things we have not yet explored. So thank you so much. Well, I was I was very surprised when I I'm a big Bill Burr fan, and uh, in his in his latest uh, comedy special, it's, he's very open about talking about his. Uh, his experience taking taking psilocybin and and what that did for him and I I, I thought it was a whole like little mini thing on uh, the benefits of that kind of therapy because he he kind of goes into you know his uh, what it exposed to him which we can say was somewhat of a mixed bag and uh, I think uh, I'm I'm fascinated as this starts to become more more mainstreamed obviously you guys are our pioneers as I I said earlier but. Um, there's going to be more conversations and there's going to be more more need for people who have expert advice and experience in this realm. And uh, thank you all for undertaking this journey. Um, that concludes our podcast. Thank you for listening. Uh, this has been Ben Don't Break.